the series on our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a bit, and uh, then played the tape showing the things that God says we are to do and the commission that I felt we were given on the first service we had in this organization, and I thought it was a good thing to review. I was amazed as I listened at some of the things that have happened since then that were pretty well laid out, not by my wisdom and, uh, and knowledge, but by Scripture itself and how they have come to pass and that God had directed us to understand and to know some of the things that had to happen and some of those things are yet in front of us as well, uh, but they are coming up very quickly and we find ourselves in the middle of what was said there. But we are in a time right now which is somewhat difficult and I want to continue the thought from last week a little today with a quick review of the Minor Prophets only instead of looking at it directly about the church now I want to look at it a little bit more from the standpoint of what is happening in our nation today and where that is leading and how the scriptures are laid out because we're in a time when we could be very frustrated uh, impatient wondering when and how long, O oh Lord, before these things come to pass, before deliverance comes, before healings take place, before God begins to smile and shine upon us. So I want to quickly do a very brief summary of some of the minor prophets and then emphasize certain areas of it because I think that's where we find ourselves today and it gives us some insight in how to deal with the pressures we are feeling, how to handle what is going on. Uh, so let's look at it more from that perspective today. Uh, a very quick summary <coughs> of Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Uh, in these my 12 minor prophet books, it lays out really what the problems are in our nation today and what God intends to do about it. In Hosea, he shows that we are, have become bastard children, that we are not God's people anymore. You know, he, he divorced Israel. He's going to remarry spiritual Israel. So there is an interim time here when physical Israel still exists, and even spiritual Israel exists along with it, and yet God is not happy with either the church or the nation. So in Hosea, it lays out the problems. It talks about Ephraim being like a stiff-necked heifer who plants all four feet and drags backward. If you've ever had a rope on an animal that has not been taught to lead, you know exactly what this is talking about. They plant all four feet and they will choke themselves almost to death before they'll move forward. And as they lean back on the rope and actually choke themselves, then that scares them and they pull back even harder. Instead of realizing all they have to do is walk forward and the pressure is over. Now we as a nation stand before God, he says, like a backsliding heifer. We simply will not lead in the ways God wants us to go. And he speaks of Ephraim in particular. So when the book of Hosea opens as an end-time prophecy, the nation 
that is first and foremost in God's mind is the United States of America. There are those Protestants who will tell you that the prophecies don't include America in the end time. They don't see America in the prophecies. Now, how in the world could you have a nation this important to the whole world economy, to the whole world picture, to all the geopolitics of everything that is going on in the world, and not have it prominent in the end time? That is ludicrous. Did God somehow just think, oh, I forgot, America will be there at the end, I should have included them. Is he that deaf and dumb? He wrote these things thousands of years ago, and he knew exactly what the dynamics would be here at the end. And we are very prominent. In fact, we're number one. And this whole thing of the end-time prophecies opens right here. We are the first nation to truly be destroyed. And the whole world comes apart when we are destroyed. That is very clear when you understand who the great whore of Revelation 17 and 18 is. And it's not the Catholic Church. It's the United States of America. The one Ezekiel 16 says has gone a-whoring from their God. That's where it opens. That's where it starts. Whose economy right now is in dire danger of collapsing and taking the economy of the whole world with it. So God opens the story of the end-time prophecies with the book of Hosea, saying what the problems are. Verse 17 of chapter 4, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Verse 16, I just quoted, For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and I will destroy your mother, chapter 4, verse 6. Our mother Israel is going to be destroyed. Chapter 5, verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. For I will be to Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. <clears throat> You've seen, probably, lions attack animals, either in Africa or in films, documentaries, how they'll tear into an animal, just chew it in pieces. And when they're satiated, they go away and lay down, leaving the animal a bloody carcass, with pieces and parts torn off and eaten. That's the way God says he is going to, or what he says he is going to do to this nation. So Hosea opens with a pretty dire picture. The book of Joel then says, the, the word Joel means, the Lord is God. And he is going to show his power, his mighty hand. And all these events that we're talking about here lead up to the day of the Lord and the destruction of this nation and ultimately of the whole world because they will not submit to and obey God. 
They will do things the way they want to. God says every knee will wind up bowing to God. Now, they don't do it today, but they're going to. But it is going to take incredible pressure for that to ever happen. The absolute destruction of the entire society and culture of the world and the death of all but about 100 million people who are walking the earth today. That's not even 10% of the population of the earth that is going to survive what is coming up within probably the next 10 years from start to finish. He's going to show he is God, and he calls upon his people to repent, to change, to grow, to turn to him, to be humble, to be meek. And then when it's finished, he is going to bless. So Hosea and Joel are pretty powerful, dramatic books. Then you come to Amos, which means burden. And then Amos shows all of the transgressions of the various peoples and what we have done. And goes through some of the serious problems in our culture and society today. That we the people, not just the government we have over us, are sinful and wretched and ungodly. We pride ourselves on being a Christian nation, and we aren't. Not at all. We're totally unchristian in the way we approach life. Yeah, people go to church, but they are unchristian, and they are unchristlike in the way they do business, the way they operate their families and their lives. We do not manage as Christ would manage. It says in chapter 6, verse 11, For behold, the eternal commands, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. We applied that to the church, the great house, and then those that came from her being split as well. But it's also talking about this nation. How many Americans have their great house, their number one house, and now have a number two house in a vacation area? Their vacation home. We have been so wealthy and so spoiled, many of us have those things. And whether we actually have one down on the beach somewhere, we've got one we rag around behind our cars, if nothing else, or our trucks, because we have the great house and then we have the little house for vacations. So he goes through and shows that God will stand with a plumb line, chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. He'll measure it. And he says, in Amos, prepare to meet your God. That's a challenge. You are going to meet your God. Be prepared. Get ready. It is coming. Then you go to Obadiah, and it reflects the story of Jacob and Esau, and how Esau would hate his brother forevermore, and that, as Genesis 48, I think it is, shows that Esau will rise above Jacob at the end time, and will be in the fat places as Isaac uh, predicted, will be among the banksters that we have in our country and in the world today, who have financial control of what is going on. They would be part and parcel and probably in charge of that. So we have the red badge Rothschilds, who are of the red shield, that's what Rothschild means, the red shield of Esau. And they are 
behind the scenes in control of the whole banking system. So what God predicted is upon us. And then he uses the book of Obadiah to show that because they rise up against Jacob and laugh at our calamity in that day when we are destroyed, then he will destroy Esau. Because God chose Jacob, he may use Esau as a tool to punish Jacob, but ultimately Obadiah gets destroyed as well. So this is a very quick, fast-forwarded picture of what is upon us today. Then we have the book of Jonah, better pronounced Jonah, of someone who was commissioned by God to do a job, a work, a specific task, and ran from it. Now, in the original case, the original Jonah was to go and preach to Nineveh. And he did not want to do it because he knew the prophecies that God would uh, forgive Nineveh if they repented. And he didn't want them forgiven. And he knew that they would destroy Israel. So he wanted Nineveh destroyed. He didn't want God to forgive them and give them opportunity. So he ran, and you know the story of the great fish that swallowed him up for three days, and he got belched out on the beach, uh, all white from gastric juices, and went in as a really, really, really white man, like a starch shirt, into the city of Nineveh, and probably caused quite a stir just because there's no man yet been a white man. <laughs> Jonah was the original first and last white man that ever walked the face of the earth. God saw to it that he did the job that he had been given to do. We have an end time Jonah that I think reflects to Zechariah 4, uh, where it says, your hands began building the temple, they will finish it. You might run, but I have my ways of dealing with those who run from a job I give them to do. So I believe there is a man today who began something and ran from the job, knows of the job, and will be made to finish the job. So everything is going right on course. Then we come to Micah, and this is a prophecy against Samaria and Jerusalem, both the northern tribes and the section which was Judah, all of Israel, in other words, including the Jews, the Benjamites, and the Levites, who were reckoned as Judah, as opposed to the other tribes, were known as the ten northern tribes, or in their capital was in Samaria instead of Jerusalem. So it addresses both houses here. And he says, Hear all you people, and let the eternal God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple, which is in heaven, but he also has a holy temple here on the earth, which is here to warn people to change, to grow, to repent, to overcome. It says, He comes out of his place and will come and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt and the valleys be cleft as wax before the fire. So he is going to make his great might and power known to Israel, to the United States, the British Commonwealth, Western Europe, uh, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, wherever God's original people Israel are scattered today. 
Verse 6, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof, or uncover the foundations of, or destroy. What that means when I, I will discover them, I'll break it down, clear to the foundation. He has done that in the past with Jerusalem and said it would be desolate for many generations. And he is about to break down the end-time nation of Israel to the very foundation, just as he did originally. You see, we don't learn fast. And that may be part of the lesson we need to learn from history, as we study the history that occurred in the Bible, and then we come upon what God says about us here at the end. Israel disobeyed. They were taken into captivity out of their land, and it was left desolate for many generations. In the 1600s, he allowed us to return to our land of Ephraim, and the promised land originally given. And what have we done in the last 400 years? We have strayed further and further and further from God, and now he is poised to destroy us and make us desolate again as he did before. It's about to come. Verse 9, her wound is incurable. There's no way of curing the problems we have today. Uh, I was reading an article just the other day about how we had reached the optimum condition in our society and its economy. Now, optimum in that context, they explain, does not mean that we're in a really good place. You know, I'm in my optimum position doesn't mean that I'm right where I want to be. In terms of economy and finances, that word optimum meant we are in a position where anything we do will be wrong. Any move we make, raise interest rates, lower interest rates, uh, feed the companies that are going under or don't feed the companies that are going under. We've reached what you might call checkmate or stalemate in other terms, where we can't move. Game over, if you want to use chess parlance, or using their economic terms, optimum position. Any move you make is the wrong move. And we find our system strangulated right now and in that position. There is no curing, it says here. Chapter 2 of Micah, I want to focus a little bit here now. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. So many in the financial world lay on their beds at night figuring out how they can become filthy rich by manipulating the stock market, by manipulating the financial world. They dreamed up buying on margin, for instance, just as a brief, quick example. What that means is if you want to buy stock in the stock market, you can put up, let's say you want to buy 100 shares, you put up 10% in cash, and they will loan you the other 90% to buy that 100 shares of stock. So now you 
own it, except you only own actually, truly, 10% of it, because the rest is borrowed money. But it's called leverage, or margin. You leverage yourself into more by borrowing 90% of the money used to buy it. Now, if that stock keeps going up, you're making money at your 10% of money plus the 90% you borrowed, right? So you're making a lot of money as long as things are going up. But now if it starts going down and it starts losing money and it gets back down to what it was when you bought it and starts going below that, You've not, only lost, you've not only started losing your 10%, you've started losing that 90% that you borrowed. And then they do what they call a margin call. Hey, you owe us 90% of what this was worth when you bought it. Now it's worth less than that. You have to pay us back the whole thing. Try that. It's great. When, you're, when it's going up, but now it's going down. The stock market's lost 20% of its value, lacks only six points since October of 2007. 20% and well under a year, and it's going down fairly rapidly. Bump, bump, bump as it goes. Up a little, down a lot, up a little, down a lot. So we're in a position where these financial geniuses and wizards have dreamed up ways to make a lot of money off you through all kinds of shenanigans and subprime mortgages, which we're sick of hearing about, but they're out there. Loan money to people who can't pay it back, have no way of paying it back, make your commissions and go on. And then when things begin to go bad, they lose their houses, but so what? You made money through the fees that you took. They do these things because it is in the power of their hand to do so. It's where we are today. They covet fields and take them by violence or by violent methods or by wrong methods. So it's not just the houses, it's not just the money in the stock market, it's the land. They found ways of tying it up in mortgages and then causing those people who have the mortgages to lose their land. Farmers buy the land, they have to pay interest on it. They buy equipment, they pay interest on it. They have a bad crop or two, they lose their land. It's set up for the big guys to get bigger and the little guys to get smaller. They covet fields, take them by violence, and houses, and take them away. This is not a future prophecy anymore. This is something that is happening, and you can see it on the mainstream news every night. Price of houses is still plummeting. Foreclosures are at an all-time high. This isn't going to stop until there isn't an American who doesn't have a house or a place to live. And houses can take them away, so they oppress a man and his house even a man and his heritage. When they take your house, they've taken your entire financial base in most cases. You have no place to live. You have no place to call home. The homeless are increasing in America today. 
living in their cars because they just lost their house. Couldn't make the payments on the house, can't make them payment on a, an apartment to rent. Middle class people living in their cars. It's becoming more and more common. Even a man and his heritage. What did they look upon their house as? A piggy bank that would continue to grow in value and they could use it to retire on. And they even some of them bought two and three and four more houses to flip because the prices were going up and they could retire even better. And now they're losing those. <laughs> Most people have their retirements and their pensions tied up in the stock market. So do the insurance companies. That means that they've lost 20 cents on the dollar just since October. Their pensions are going away. Their retirement is going away. So their heritage is being lost as well. This is not a future prophecy anymore, is it? It's right here. It's right staring us in the face. Therefore thus says the Eternal, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which you shall not remove your necks. Neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. Our pride is going to be broken. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He has changed the portion of my people. How has he removed it from me? Turning away, he has divided our fields. Divided them up, taken them away. We be utterly spoiled. Is our portion being changed? Our retirements, our pensions are going away. Social security will go away. Some of you right here are living only on Social Security. There will come a time soon when your Social Security check will no longer come. There will come a time when even if you did get your Social Security check, it wouldn't buy enough food to eat for a month. Milk is now over $6 a gallon in some places. Verse 5, Therefore you shall have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the eternal. Prophesy you not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. They don't want to hear it. Don't want to know it's coming. Say don't prophesy. Does that mean we shouldn't? I don't think so. Got to tell it like it is like it's coming down already. O you that are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the eternal straightened? Are these his doings? Is God doing this to us? Do not my words do good to him that walks uprightly? There's a philosophical question for you. Is God behind this? And if we are a Christian nation, and we are working, walking uprightly and obeying his commandments then he wouldn't be doing this, would he? So then the question remains, are we unchristian as a nation? Even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. God says if we have fellowship with this world, the ways of this world, the culture around us, we are his enemies. We read that in the New Testament. Here it is in the Old Testament. 
Anyone who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And he says his people have become his enemy. You pull off the robe with a garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. Not just our houses, not just our heritage or our future, but even our clothes are going to be jerked off. O oh, you that are named, the house of Jacob is this, let's see, I've already read that. The women of my people have you cast out from their pleasant houses. Yes, it referred to the church. We were cast out of our pleasant houses and the church torn apart. But now we're physically going to see the homemakers, the wives, the women of this country cast out of their fine homes. All these new McMansions that you see going up all over the country are going to be ripped out of there. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. The glory that God gave Israel, this fruitful, double fruitful land of Ephraim we live in. The fruit is being taken away. Notice verse 10. Arise you and depart, for this is not your rest. This isn't America anymore, the land of the free, the home of the brave. It is not the place for much longer that people will even want to come to. There are people from Mexico who have now started going back to Mexico because things could be better for them there than they actually are here. Can you imagine that? There is a scripture, I don't know where it is right now, that says that people will go back where they came from. Things are going to get so bad, it's already beginning in a small way to happen. This isn't our rest. He says, get up and get away from it. Does that sound like Revelation 18.4? Depart from her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. It is polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a terrible destruction. Do you want to be hanging on to something that is going to be destroyed because it is polluted and it will destroy you too. A very strong warning here. Verse 12, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of you. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. And then it talks about the breaker coming upon this nation. But God is going to gather out of it his remnant. Notice here in chapter 3. Uh, I pray you, heads of Jacob and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? Now we have a problem here in that we are the people of Israel. This is God's chosen land that he gave the double portion to of his, the one he reckons as his firstborn, Ephraim. So we are the people of Israel, brought here, given this original promised land again as the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here we are, in the most blessed land on the face of the earth up to this point. But God says, I'm going to jerk it all away from you. And he says, listen, 
Shouldn't our leaders know judgment? Well, yeah, they should. But they pay no attention to God. And we are the people of Israel, but we are ruled over by a Babylonian government in Washington, D.C. It is not a state. There are 50 states, a multitude of nations in Ephraim, ruled over by people who are not one of those states and who do not even live in one of those states. They are a separate institution, separated from us by physical, geographical boundaries, or by political boundaries, I should say, not geographical. They are not of us, and they are set to destroy us. Verse 2, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. Do we see a Federal Reserve inflating us into oblivion today and picking everything we have off our bones? We are now mortgaged by the trillions of dollars to other nations, and they are going to foreclose on the only thing we have left. That is our bodies as slaves and our homes for their own wealth. It is said that when you consider the amount of our debt today, this happened in 15 years. 15 years ago, America had more creditors as a creditor nation than anyone on earth. More people owed us more money than any other nation on earth. We were in the position of a lender. Fifteen years later, today, we owe more money than any other nation on earth. We have gone from prince to pauper, from replete with money to bankrupt. And we are not only bankrupt, we are trillions of dollars into bankruptcy. And it is said that every American today owes $10 million. Our government has sold us out to the point of $10 million each in wars, in bad balance of trade, foreign aid, various things they've done to mortgage us. Now, if you're mortgaged for $10 million, bucks, those countries around the world are going to look at it and say, what assets do they have? When you go into bankruptcy, they examine your assets and they parcel them out to all those that you owe. And the only thing they can give them is our McMansions, our cars, our fields, and us. And they're still not going to get 10 cents on the dollar. But they'll take what they can get. So they'll take the physical things in our country, and then they will take those who have survived the famine and pestilence and the sword or the invasion to come and use them as slaves. See, the Chinese are getting to the point they want raises in pay. They're not content to work on a quarter a day anymore. So they will take us and use us to make Nikes for Europeans. That's all I can get. 
They'll pluck a skin from off them, their flesh from off their bones, Micah 3, verse 3, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces, as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. Read Ezekiel 24, describes the same thing, both of the church and of the physical nation now. Then shall they cry to the eternal. They're going to take us right down to the point of cutting us up when we die and getting whatever minerals they can out of us. Our gold teeth, the minerals that are in our blood and bones. They'll render us out to get what value they can out of us. Those that survive then will cry to the Eternal, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Thus says the Eternal concerning the prophets that make my people to err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that puts not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore, night shall be to you that you shall not have a vision. Now, this could be in the church, and now it is increasingly in the land of the United States. We have no vision of where we can go and what we can do to extricate ourselves from the mess that we have made. Every nation, every kingdom, every power that has ever used paper money has come to a crisis where they thought the only way out was to print more money to pay debts. And then the money became worthless. And it came to the point in Germany right after World War I that to buy one single cigarette cost 30 million Deutschmarks. Zimbabwe right now, I think, is right at around 15,000% a year inflation. It was 3,000 a while back. There's nothing much left to buy, and you have to have a wheelbarrow full of money, if you have a wheelbarrow, to buy what is there. And we're headed the same direction. Because what they're doing right now in this country is printing dollars as fast as they can make them and creating them on the Internet, by computer, just so many dots, to increase the money supply, to pay debts, and to keep easy credit. And in spite of all that, it's getting hard for banks to borrow from banks because they don't trust each other, and it's getting hard for us to get loans because they don't trust us to be able to pay it back, and they are out of money, and they're in deep, deep trouble. And there is no recovery. There is no way out. Just as God says here, in which they are beginning to put on the Internet that we're in the optimum position or in checkmate. Can't move. Can't do anything about it. We're done. Finished. It's over. Therefore, night shall be to you that you shall not have a vision. We see no way out of our problems. They'll get on the TV and they'll try to tell you the worst is over. <laughs> it hasn't even begun. The worst. Well, we're in it now, but it's not anywhere near over. And it shall be dark to you. See no way to go. Did Bear Stearns find a way out? Did they have a vision? How are they going to solve their problems? They've been absorbed. Now, 
Citibank is in terrible trouble, uh, J.P. Morgan even, Goldman Sachs, all these people are in a very, very poor financial position. General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler are about to go under, all three of them. General Motors stock was put in the sell category. It's junk, worthless. Sell it now before you lose it all. And GM stock dropped the other day when the market fell 358 points in one day very rapidly. They've had it. They're done. You won't be able to buy Chevrolets pretty soon. Ford is about to go under. And Chrysler is hanging by a thread. Do they have a vision? Do they have a way out? What could it possibly be? We're being flooded with cars from Japan and Korea and soon from China that are cheaper, that are better made. Our car companies have no vision. They're in the dark. They're going under. It shall be dark to you that you shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. It's that way in the church because they see no way to do the jobs that they think God has given them to do. And the door is closing. People are dying. And no more are being called. Only a very, very, very few. <laughs> so it's working both ways. The sun shall go down. Then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. All these white-collar analysts in New York were going to be ashamed. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. They can't find answer anywhere on this earth, and they can't find an answer from God. That's talking probably more about the church than it is the nation, but it applies to both. But verse 8, But truly I, says Micah, because he was under the inspiration of God, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Eternal, and of judgment, and of might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So even at our darkest hour in this country and in the church, there will be a few who understand, who know what God is doing and how he is going about it and what can be done about it, and be full of power by the Spirit of God. There will be a few, not very many. Micah is talking to the whole of Israel. And he says, I know what's going on. And it's a prophecy for the end time, and there will be those in Micah's position here at the end. Hear this, I pray, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. Has the equity in our homes been perverted? Been destroyed? Man alive, this ain't prophecy no more. This is the truth. This is it. This is what's happening. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. They're trying to build up the system through sin, through cheating, lying, and taking away from those that don't have much. And that's how they're trying to build it up. Let's take all they have. The heads thereof judge for reward. Do we have payola and bought and paid for politicians and judges? The priests teach for hire. 
Is that what we see in the Protestant world today? Is that what we see in the church today? Hirelings. There for the money, not for the reasons God has. Yet will they lean upon the eternal. They'll use God's name, but they're not going to do what he says. And they say, is not the Lord among us? No evil shall come upon us. It's said both in the church. We're doing God's work. We're going to be okay. And they're going to say it right up to the point of Zechariah 11 when three major ministries are going to be destroyed in one month. Probably by the financial collapse. I don't know that for sure. But they will be destroyed. They say no evil can come upon us. We're the Philadelphians. Everything's okay. And we're saying it as a nation. This is America. Nothing can happen to us. I've heard people say, well, we have a little financial problem right now, but we have the greatest military on earth, and nobody can touch us. Whistling in the dark. What about when all these people withdraw from our dollar, and we try to spend dollars to move our troops from one nation to another, and to fly our planes? And they say, I don't want your dollars. What are you going to do? How can you move a troop when no one will take your dollars to let them out of their country or to let them into their country? How can you buy oil when no one wants your dollar? They want Deutschmarks, maybe. They want yen, maybe. They want rupees. They want this. They want that. But they won't want the dollar. And the dollar is all we have to buy oil with. The dollar is falling in value so fast, the Arabs are getting really nervous. And pretty soon, the prophecy will come to pass, your highways will be desolate. We've been reading about how our houses will be desolate and taken away from us. And pretty soon, our highways will be desolate. I don't remember where that one is, but it's in here. Verse 12, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. We're going to become a pile of rubble, junk, trash in this country. Now, let's get some encouraging news here a little bit in chapter 4, because this has been pretty gloomy and doom-ridden to this point, hasn't it? Chapter 4, but in the last days, not after the last days, in the last days. Now, that is important for you and me to understand. We're not talking about the millennium here and the things that follow in Micah 4 and 5. We're talking about in the last days, before they're over with, during them, in them. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. It's talking about the same time Haggai is, that God is going to turn and bless the remnant of his church, and they will flow to the mountain where the house of God will be established in the top of the mountains. And many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now we know that the end time work is rebuilding the temple, the latter temple, Spiritually, and now I believe, probably, very probably, very likely, the physical temple as well. By the people of God, not by the Jews, 
who do not obey God and are not the people of God, whom Christ said were snakes, whitened sepulchers, inside of tombs, and a generation of vipers, among other things. He is not going to use them. He said, I will not have anything to do with you till you accept those whom I sent. That started with the disciples who became apostles, and has continued to this day, and they have still not accepted either Christ or those whom he sent, and God has nothing to do with the Jews. He will not use them to build his temple. They may build their temple to their God, the devil, in a false Jerusalem. They very well may do that. They have plans to do that. And if they do, the whole world will accept that as the temple of the living God, but it will be the temple of their father, the devil. Didn't Christ tell them in no uncertain terms, you are of your father, the devil? Another place he says, you worship, you know not what. Have they gotten any better since then? Have they turned to God in any way that is discernible to us today? If anything, they're worse now than they were then. And God has stated emphatically he will not use them to do his work. He's called us to do his work. If anybody builds the temple of God, it is going to be people of the church of God whom he draws from all over the world who have been faithful to him. And they will build the house of God. And he will speak from that house, not from any temple the Jews put up and a false Jerusalem. It just won't happen. And they'll have a false Christ and a false Jerusalem and a false temple. And the whole world will bow down before it. But God's people in the last days are going to establish the house of God on a mountaintop. And many will come. And God will be there, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. The church of God is the only religion on earth today that teaches the law of God. And most of the churches, splinters of the church of God today, have gotten away from that even, and from much of the Bible. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. People shall not lift up a sword against people, neither shall they learn war anymore. We're going to quit fighting among ourselves. God's true remnant is going to come out. And those sharp words and sharp ways that we have had are going to be turned into implements of peace. Doesn't he say in Haggai, in this place, the latter temple, I will bring peace. This is not talking about the millennium. This is talking about in the last days. We're going to quit fighting among ourselves and have peace and build God's temple. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now that is not mentioned many times in the Bible. It is mentioned, however, in Zechariah 3 that under Joshua, one of the two witnesses, before the end comes, that men will have their own vine and their own fig tree. 
So in the last days, when Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two witnesses, take eminence and preeminence in the church and lead the church in the right directions, it will come to pass that we will sit under our own vine and fig tree. We will not be mortgaged out to anyone. We will not owe anyone. We will sit under our own vine and fig tree. God is going to give us an agricultural situation and we'll be autonomous and sovereign and truly be free under God and under those whom he sends to lead us in the right ways. And none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the eternal of hosts has spoken it. God is going to give us, in the last days, a peaceful place where we will be protected. He says in Zechariah 2 that there will be a wall of fire and a covert from the heat. He says in Isaiah, essentially the same things, chapter 4, that these things will happen. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So once this starts in the last days, it will continue. It will never again be interrupted. You see, Israel was blessed by God and sinned. Jerusalem was destroyed. God brought us back to the promised land in the end, just as he said he would do. And we have sinned, and our land is again about to be destroyed. And the only part of that land that will be preserved and protected is where Zion and Jerusalem are and where God's people are and they will obey him and he will protect them. You had better be sure that you are in the place doing the things that this chapter tells us to do. Be sure of that because everything else is going down and under. In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, the lame, can't walk, can't go anywhere, aren't accomplishing anything. You know, if you're really going to do something, you've got to be able to get up and walk around, don't you? If you can't walk, ask Charlotte back here. She has bad knees. It's very, very hard for her to accomplish much because she can't walk much, can't get around. And the church has been like that. Church has had Charlotte's knees for some time now. Barely walk. I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant. And her that was cast far off a strong people. And the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion or henceforth even forever. When God puts his remnant church together, he's going to protect it from there on out. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Doesn't he say he's going to give the power and the plumb line to Zerubbabel? And that before Zerubbabel, the nations, the mountains will be made plain. The power of God is going to be given to the true church of God to the latter temple. Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? We as the church, the whole church has been crying aloud. What's going on? What's wrong? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? What happened after Herbert Armstrong died? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. It's been a sore time. It's been hurtful. 
been painful what has gone on in the church, hasn't it? And he likens it to a woman having a baby, birth pains. Be in pain. <laughs> Go ahead. Be in pain, he says. And labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Go through whatever pain is necessary. He's talking to you and me here. He's not talking to the nation as a whole now. He's narrowed it down. He said, all this trouble that we've talked about today is going to come on this nation. And now to a select few, he says, go ahead and go through whatever pain you have to go through to bring forth what you need to bring forth, and that is the holiness and the righteousness of our Savior. So daughter of Zion, and we're a daughter of the church, tells us to be in pain. Now that anybody can read this, can't they? Any one of the daughters of Worldwide can read this and apply it. I ask you how many will? Only one. Only one. The one which God calls the fairest of them all in Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, who does the things needed to get prepared so that when winter comes, symbolically, we will be ready for it. That one. And to her will be given the first dominion, or the power, the rule, the government, in his church. And it will spread from there, from the two witnesses and those who are a part of it, to the whole world in the millennium. But it will be established in the last days, not after them. This is talking about now. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field or the open places, and you shall go even to Babylon. Can't get out of it, but go out into the desolate places. There shall you be delivered. There is where God is going to deliver his people. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many peoples are gathered against you that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look down upon Zion. In skepticism and sarcasm and hatred, which is about the way the rest of the church looks at us, those idiots out there, well, we've done what it says to do right here, haven't we? We've done it. It's not a prophecy anymore. Now there are going to be more who come. We're only the prep crew. There will be a 10% remnant of the church that are going to come. And this will happen in these last days. But they know not the thoughts of the eternal, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves to the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Is he going to give power to the leaders of this church, God's church? Yes, he is. I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain to the eternal and their substance to the eternal of the whole earth. When this is finished, and the witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem up here, God is going to take over and give everything that the world has taken from Israel back to Israel. I won't go through the rest of the book of, of Micah. Uh, there might, let me look here. I wrote down a couple of notes. Uh, that I might want to hit. Let's look at 6-8 for a moment. 
He has showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you? I, there are some things in here that are keys for us to focus on right now, because we are in the death throes of this nation, when it's beginning to shake violently like a chicken after you cut its head off. And we're at the beginning of what God is going to do to save his people out of it. And we need to key in on certain passages here that show us what we need to be doing. Not only moving out into the wilderness, away from the cities to get out of Babylon, but our attitudes. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you. Now, if God is going to make us a part of the vine and the fig tree and those that he protects in the place that he has chosen, here's what he requires. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Not in pride, not in vanity, not in ego, but to give place to one another, to consider others better than ourselves, to do whatever we can, however menial it might be, to help others, to prepare for others, to prepare a place for others. To do justly. We don't see much justice in this land today. We don't see much mercy either. They'll take your house, they'll take your car, they'll take your life to retain what they want. But we're supposed to be going the opposite way. Walk humbly. The eternal's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name, hear you, the, the rod, and who has appointed it. God is going to raise his voice. He is going to call a people, and he says, you'd better recognize where I am working. We need to be very much aware. We need to be doing what God requires of us and be very alert to where he is doing his work and what he is about to to accomplish. Verse 13, Therefore also, speaking of the nation again, will I make you sick in smiting you. You ever get kicked in the groin or in the stomach and get so nauseated all over you felt like just laying down and throwing up? I'll make you sick in smiting you and making you desolate because of your sins. We'd like to blame all our problems on the Democrats or the Republicans or whoever we in politics we'd like to blame them on. But we have a government we deserve. We are a lying, cheating, thieving nation. Greedy to the core. We don't care who gets in the way. We're Americans. We'll run over them. We'll stick a boot up your behind, as one popular song says. A little graphic, more graphic than that, but essentially that. It's not funny. But it is the attitude of America today. It goes on to talk about how there'll, there'll be bombs coming from the sky to light you up. And that is the American attitude. God is going to humble it very quickly. You'll eat but not be satisfied, and your casting down shall be in the midst of you. Uh, chapter 7, verse 13. Let's pick it up there. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. 
We are going to be made desolate in this land because of the way we have lived, not because the Democrats or the Republicans did us wrong. It's coming on our heads. God is going to punish us for our sins. Feed your people with your rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. God's going to make the land desolate, but he wants his people fed in verdant, good places. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show to him marvelous things. God is going to do things for us that, as Jeremiah says, will make us forget what happened at the Red Sea. Incredible miracles are coming for God's people. The nation shall see you and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They won't want to see or hear what God is doing with us because it is, it is different from and apart from and against their new world order. It is the only thing that will stand in the way of their world government. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the eternal our God and shall fear because of you. Those who will be humble, who will be, do justly, who will love mercy, are going to make the world stand on end, turn the world upside down. And they're going to do it from the original Jerusalem and Zion in the promised land of Utah or Judah where we live today. Mark God's words. They'll hate us. They'll fear us. God is going to give us power, might over them. Who is a God like to you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He says he'll forgive our sins as a cloud in one day. What kind of a God is that? You and I aren't whole lot better than anybody else around us, are we? If any, better? Don't we have the same carnal desires and appetites that the rest of the world does? Don't we have some of the same greediness and selfishness, the same vanity, the same pride, the same ego? Don't we look down on other races, on other peoples, and think we're above them, and why should I do that? Because that's Mexican work or whatever. What that is, is exalting ourselves above others. It is not, that is not humble, that is pride, that is ego, that is vanity. Are we above all that? I don't think so. We still have our problems. What an incredible God who will pass by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God loves mercy. And he wants us to love it too. Go on to the book of Nahum. I'll have to hurry up here. This is a burden or a prophecy against Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrians. And the Assyrian is going to be part and parcel with the confederacy or the conspiracy to rule the world here at the end time and probably be the leaders of it. But it's going to be a confederacy of many nations as Psalm 83 shows and as Isaiah 8 shows. But in the middle of this prophecy against Nineveh, he shows that Israel is going to be in trouble 
Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. So even as we see the walls coming down around us, as we see our American empire collapsing, and he is going to send the Assyrian to destroy us, he says, remember, and that God, well, he says that God remembers those that trust him. So if you want to be remembered of God, trust him. When he says in Micah what we are to do here at the end in order to be a part of this vine and fig tree era that he is going to bring in the last days, he says, trust him, believe him, obey him. Then he says he'll make an overrunning flood and make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Notice verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. You can read this in Isaiah 52. You can read about it in Isaiah 40. O Judah, keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God is going to begin an end-time work. Starts in Isaiah 40 and continues through there, where it talks about the voice of him that cries in the wilderness against the sin of the nation. And that God will make beautiful feet to bring forth and to give good news to those who will obey God there in Isaiah 40 and 41. And he goes on through and shows that we are his witnesses, his true people, through the next few chapters there of Isaiah 40 to 50. And in 44 and 45... It gets down to Cyrus coming to help the church build the temple and lay the foundation, or lay the foundation of the temple and build the walls of Jerusalem. So it's talking about the work at the end time. And he brings it in here, right here in Nahum, where it's talking about us being ready to be invaded by the New World Order as a nation. And that in the midst of that destruction that is about to come, he is going to send his messengers to let us know. He that dashes in pieces, chapter 2, verse 1, is come up before your face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make your loins strong, fortify your power mightily. So we're supposed to be gaining spiritual strength. What does God say? Zephaniah, it says that the gold and the silver will be thrown in the streets, the physical gold and silver, when the crash comes. Revelation 3, verse 8 says, To buy of me, he's talking to the Laodiceans there, those at the end. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. Spiritual gold, treasure in heaven. Physical gold they're going to throw in the street. Spiritual gold will endure. We're, we're being tried in the fire right now. And this is the time we need to be buying gold. The world is telling us, buy physical gold, buy physical gold. When this thing all comes to an end, you'll be the rich ones if you have physical gold. Now God says they're going to throw the physical gold and silver ultimately in the street. And the only ones who will survive and thrive will be those who have spiritual gold. That's what we need to be buying right now. 
Maybe physical silver and gold can help you for a little bit, for a little while physically, until they do throw it in the street. You can't eat the stuff. But God will preserve those who have spiritual gold. That's the difference. All right, I want to get to the back book of Habakkuk. That's where I was headed today until I got sidetracked, realizing that this whole story needed to be reviewed very quickly. Habakkuk is poised just before these things happen. And that's where we find ourselves today, because right after the book of Habakkuk comes Zephaniah, which gives the decree of destruction of our financial world. The whole economy of the nation and the world is going down, prophesied in Zephaniah. And just before that, as the build-up to that comes, Habakkuk is considering things. Now understand that Habakkuk sitting here saying, what's going on, how long, O Lord? He'll even say that in it in a minute. And then Zephaniah comes along and says there's going to be a destruction. Zephaniah 2 says, get out of her, go away from her, gather yourselves before the financial destruction occurs. If you don't, it is going to occur, and you're going to be in the middle of it. And he talks about the careless women in Isaiah 32, the careless churches who don't. So it would appear that the financial destruction is going to come before the gathering occurs. Now God warns to gather, maybe some will begin to do so. But a lot of them may not come until they are stripped naked. And that's sad. But it appears that the latter church, the latter temple, and the physical temple in Jerusalem will be built after the crash. Because Haggai and Zechariah come downstream from Zephaniah, and from Habakkuk for that matter. So if this thing is in order, in the way that it will come down, the financial destruction and the military destruction may mostly have occurred before we actually start truly building the temple of God. It says it will be built, the Jerusalem will be built in troublous times there in Daniel. Troublous times, Daniel 9, or 10, 9, 9 I think it is. So trouble is coming and coming fast, fast upon us. So here's a burden from Habakkuk, the prophet. He starts out in verse 2. O Eternal, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Now that is exactly where we are today. We see the decree of Zephaniah coming fast upon us. We read all these prophecies in Isaiah and other places about how God will heal and he'll give us the deer legs and he'll bless the uh, deserts and they'll bloom as a rose in Isaiah 35. And on and on and on it goes. Or Isaiah 38. 35, all through there. How long will I cry and you won't hear? We have so many people with various physical maladies and so on right here in this little group. We're headed toward death itself in age and physical condition, aren't we? And yet we're called upon to do a mighty work and God is going to have to give us the strength and the healing in order to do it. But right now, this is our prayer. How long? will I cry, 
and you will not hear. He helps us along a little. He intervenes enough to keep us going, but he hasn't really turned it around yet, has, I? has he? And I find myself praying this same prayer pretty regularly, or whether in prayer or at least in my thoughts. How long is this going to go on and God will not turn his face and smile and hear us? How long will this be? So Habakkuk is about as timely for us right now as any scripture in the Bible. Same question is on our lips. It was on Habakkuk's. Even cry out to you of violence and you will not save. We see things falling apart around us. And yet we're part of it. And it's falling apart for us. I'm having to pay as much for fuel as the guy over in Biloxi is. Maybe more out here than Biloxi. I just, whatever name came to mind. In other words, we're going through the first part of it just like Israel did in Egypt before God makes a separation. It'll come for those who will love mercy, walk justly, and be humble. It'll come. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? Do we sigh and cry for the abominations that we see around us? For spoiling and violence are before me, and though there are those that raise up strife and contention. We see it in the world around us, and we see it even in the church. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous. We have the wicked all around us. Therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. We're having a court case right now in which I think wrong judgment was made and needs to be rectified. Behold you among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days. The people that have this question on their mind, how long, O Lord? That's the ones he's addressing here. I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. It is so incredible, so powerful, so far beyond the Red Sea, that you can't really grasp it and believe it. And most people in the church wouldn't believe it for a second. You here and out on the telephone have a chance to hear and believe because we're reading it right out of the Word of God. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Here again, we have reference to our houses being taken away. I won't go back there now for sake of time, but Isaiah 5 tells the whole thing again, how he's hedged about his vineyard and how he is going to destroy and take away our houses. We are in the middle of that right now in foreclosures. And not only do we have the foreclosures that are the first part of it, but we also have a military takeover which is coming and the rest of them will be taken away by that. Now, Chaldea was a part of Babylon and some of the Chaldeans fought for the Assyrians. So I think the term Chaldeans here isn't speaking of a particular people as much as it is a generality for the Gentile nations that are going to come and encompass us and destroy us. 
because we owe them all those trillions and they're coming to foreclose. And they will then take all our houses. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. And then it talks about their military and how strong and how powerful it will be. I won't go through all that. Verse 11, Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power to his God. And we could go to Daniel 11 and places in Revelation and show that this verse fits how they will pass over and uh, destroy. Are you not from everlasting, O eternal, my God, my Holy One? should be translated here, you shall not die. O eternal, you have ordained them for judgment, and Almighty God, you have established them for correction. He realizes that we're going to be invaded for good reason, and that God has called the Assyrian the rod of his anger back in Isaiah 7 or 8 it is. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Wherefore look you upon them that deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a man that is more righteous than he. The wicked nations are going to come upon us and destroy us and make men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them within the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. They're going to take us just like fish of the sea caught in a net. Can't get out. Now, what does Habakkuk say? I will stand upon my watch. God says he will send watchmen in the end time. And Habakkuk is a type of that here. I will stand upon my watch. And set me upon the tower. And will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now he had asked a question in the beginning, which is a little bit of a whine perhaps. How long shall I cry and you will not hear? In a way, it's, it's a little bit of an accusation against God in attitude, I think. You can't get the emotion necessarily out of printed material and you don't know how the original translation exactly was. But considering the context here, it's almost like Habakkuk was in sort of a bit of a bad attitude. How long and you're not going to hear me? Sounds a bit impatient, doesn't he? A little frustrated. He wants an answer, and he wants it now. He doesn't want to wait. How long do I have to wait? Seems to be the implication and the attitude. How long will I cry out to you about all the bad things around me and you don't say? Then he shows what's going to come. How God is going to do great things to do a work that you can't even believe or grasp or comprehend. And then he shows how the heathen are coming and going to destroy us. So it's a, it's a frustrating situation you're in. You know God has said he's going to bless you know he's going to do things for you, and yet you see the walls closing in around you and see that our nation is about to be destroyed. We find ourselves in the exact position that Habakkuk is describing because right now we're looking at Zephaniah 1 on the Internet and on the news shows every day 
about this impending collapse, and not only impending, the worlds of some businesses and some individuals are already collapsing. Layoffs from their jobs, businesses going under, airlines about to go under, some airlines already going under. It is upon us. So we sit here in this frustrating situation, seeing it coming down and not knowing how and when God is going to do his mighty, wonderful work and deliver us. It couldn't be any more now than it is today. It's here. And Habakkuk was fighting his attitude. And I'll bet every one of you out there has been doing somewhat of the same. How long before I'm healed? How long before you bless? How long before you make a separation or a division? It's been on my lips, it's been in my mind, and when I do get that way, then I have to think, adjust your attitude, Daryl. Trust God. Let's see what it says. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved or rebuked. So if we get a bit of a bad attitude and we get a bit impatient, we better sit on the watch, watch what's going on, and then see what God will do. And the Eternal answered me. Okay, here's what God had to say. And said, write the vision, all these things that he's seeing in his mind that are about to happen. Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, written out, that he may run that reads it. Now what did he tell the young man in Zechariah 2? Or tell the angel, run and tell the young man that the villages have to be built. This is becoming an urgent thing. The Jerusalem must be built as villages without walls, and that God will protect it once it is made. So we're in the same position with the same advice. Run, hurry, work. What did God tell his remnant? Be of good courage, be strong, fear not, and work. That's what he told Joshua before they went to the promised land. It's what he tells those who would build the end time temple. Same thing. So the, the language is the same. Let him run that reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It says it is a set appointed day, a specific appointed time that God has made, back in Isaiah and other places. It says it here too. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So God is saying over and over here again in one verse. I know you're impatient, I know you're in a hurry, but realize there is a set appointed time. God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows and he will do it in split-second timing. To the day. When he brought, took Israel into Egypt, he brought them out to the day when he said he would. And he is going to deliver us in exactly the day he has in mind. So here he begins to answer our impatience and our frustration by saying it's coming quickly. It won't tarry. It's coming. Don't worry. It's coming. It won't tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. Anyone who is proud, proud vain, egocentric, who thinks he's really something, this doesn't apply to. 
But the just shall live by his faith. Now that's quoted in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. Now when you see these conditions, and you see you're not yet delivered or healed, walk by faith. God will perform Micah 4 and Micah 5. God will perform deliverance of his people. He will bless with the blessings he says will come in the last days in Micah 4 and in Zechariah, Zechariah 2. No, excuse me, Zechariah 3. Where it says that each man will have his own vine and fig trees in the days of Joshua and then when Zerubbabel shows up. It will happen. Walk by faith. Faith is what? The evidence of things not seen. We don't see the answer yet. We've read about it. We've heard it. It's there. Believe it. And believe it will happen in God's absolute split-second timing. And walk forward in faith, believing that it will happen. Then he has a period here where he goes uh, and talks against the Chaldean, the one he's going to use to smite us, and shows that they too will be punished. It even shows that in Zephaniah too, that the Assyrian, whom God calls the rod of his anger in Isaiah 8, uh, will also be punished. So that was a relief to Habakkuk. I won't go through that for sake of time here. Let's go to chapter 3 and quickly go down through this. A prayer of Habakkuk. So not only does God say, walk by faith, have the right attitude, it will happen the way I say, but here's a prayer. So if Habakkuk prayed it under those conditions, this should be your prayer and mine right now, today. This is our prayer. End time prophecy. O eternal, I have heard your speech and was afraid. We've heard God say that he's going to destroy the cultures of this world, and that's fearful. We've also heard him say if we will obey him and be just and love mercy and walk humbly, that he will protect us out of it. We've heard all these things. I have heard what you've said, and I was afraid. O Eternal, revive your work in the midst of the years, and the midst of the years make known. My margin says, preserve alive your work in the middle of these years that are going to bring such destruction to this world. Preserve it alive. Isn't that our prayer? Preserve us, protect us through all of this. Count us worthy to escape all that is about to occur. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God is angry at the world. He's been angry with the church. So our prayer is, remember mercy, O eternal God. Can you think of a better prayer to pray right now as we see things coming apart before our very eyes? Most Americans will have nothing to eat very soon. A third will die of famine and pestilence. No food followed by disease. A third killed by the sword and a third taken as slaves. Foreclosed upon. And all they can get out of us is labor until they work us to death. 
There's no time to pray. Remember mercy, O eternal. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So be it. Selah. His glory covers the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove us under the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. It goes on how he cleaves the, the earth with rivers in verse 9. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. Day of the Lord. Joel being fulfilled right here. You did march through the land in indignation. You did thresh the heathen in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people. So God is going to intervene and save his true believers, his people. Uh, verse 14, latter part, they came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. They're going to try to destroy God's work. You did walk through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Isn't that our prayer? That God give us rest and peace in the latter temple, in a place that he has provided when all this comes down on the whole world. When he comes up into the people, he will invade them with his troops. And then they look around. We see what's happening today in the church and in the nation, and verse 17 describes it. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Everything is going to be upside down, coming apart, and not as it should be. Terrible, terrible picture given in verse 17. But notice verse 18. Yet... In spite of all this, in other words, yet I will rejoice in the eternal. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. will make music of joy that God will preserve and protect. So as the time comes, as it is right now, run, pray. What your prayer is, how long, O oh Lord? When will you save? When will you deliver us? It's starting to come down around us, all over. And the world is going to be destroyed. And there will be famine and pestilence everywhere. But God is going to give his people legs of deer and strength and might and power to do the job he has given them to do as a light to the world. So if we get impatient, if we get a little frustrated, we wonder how long. Maybe we need to go back to Habakkuk and read and understand his prayer. Read and understand the attitude he was in and why he was in it and the end that he saw. Walk by faith. Trust God. And it will happen at the set appointed time. The fact that you and I don't know that time exactly is part of our frustration. But we have to be walking justly, humbly, loving mercy and praying for mercy, and God will deliver. That's how to deal with what we face today in the news.